After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Thank you, Sandy. Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone. It seems like forever, but it's really only been a couple of weeks of being away. So next Sunday's kind of a big deal, right? It's Easter, and this year we get to do it in person. Amen? Amen. So that's awesome. And so we have a nine o'clock and 1045 service and uh, we only have children's ministry, uh, you know, the normal covenant coven things at the 1045 
service. So if you don't have children and you're able to, we would ask that you come to the nine o'clock service. Uh, 1045 tends to be the one that, you know, people from the outside and maybe uh, others who aren't as uh, quite uh, regular would come to. And so if you're able, we need at least some of you. Uh, if, if all of you only come to 1045, we're going to have a problem at 1045 service, okay? So help us out there if you would. So, you know, there are certain stories uh, that transcend time. They transcend culture, right? There's a couple of them that I have long been favorites since I was a kid. Uh, the epics by Homer, the, the Odyssey, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Those are good examples, stories that build and build and build the conflict until the, finally the climax happens in the story. And as the reader or the hearer, there's just a sense of resolution as things work out. I'm, uh, I'm popping up here, aren't I? All right. Uh, it's not me. Trust me. I'm okay. Uh, well, this is what we have here in this chapter. In chapter 22, we have one of those stories that has transcended time. And it's the final message. This chapter is the final message. And this series of eight messages called the Gospel According to Abraham. And so we're going to be, uh, after Easter, picking up with uh, Jacob. We're moving on from Abraham. And in this chapter, it's one of those stories like Homer's epics that transcend the culture and transcend time. You'll find this story is included in the Jewish scriptures, the, the Muslim Quran, and of course the Christian Bible. It's a, a well-crafted composition. It is a, a chiasm within, within an overarching chiasm, and it's a beautiful uh, aspect of literature and composition, just the way it's written. And again, like all great stories, the tension, it builds and it builds and it builds until finally we are uh, given this resolution. It enthralls us. It holds us. So let's jump right in. Let's see, first of all, this morning, God's test of Abraham. We ha might want to ask, why would God at this stage in Abraham's life give him this severe of a test. So we need to think about the context. So the last message a couple of weeks ago, we were in chapter 21, verse 7. And in that verse, we saw that Isaac had been born. Sarah was laughing and rejoicing, singing a song of worship to God. The people in Abraham's family were celebrating and having a party, just thrilled that the child of promise had been born. Well, almost everybody was thrilled, right? Ishmael, he wasn't thrilled. Hagar was not thrilled. Ishmael understood what the birth of Isaac meant to him, that he was going to be losing his special status. And apparently, in the succeeding years, as Isaac was growing older and becoming a toddler and a child, Ishmael began to persecute Isaac. And in some way, uh, Abraham and Sarah saw ultimately that Ishmael was a threat, maybe even to the life of, uh, of Isaac. And so they banish Ishmael and Hagar into the wilderness. And of course, we read how God takes care of Hagar and Ishmael. And from him, nations ultimately arise that ironically will antagonize the Israelites through much of their history. So when verse 1 says, after these things, he's talking about that banishment of Ishmael. After these things, <clears throat> God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham replied, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
these opening verses, right, they're kind of shocking. Uh, you can imagine uh, how they would have shocked even the original audience and the original Israelites who were standing on the banks of the Jordan River preparing to invade the Promised Land. They hear that God, Jehovah, is, is he really like the Egyptians and the Egyptian gods who, who had wiped out so many of the Hebrew children by drowning them? Uh, was he like the God of the peoples that they are coming to invade, many of whom in Canaan, different people groups, actually practice child sacrifice as, an, uh, as a part of their worship to their false gods? And so here they're being confronted with a story that could be confusing. Is Jehovah all that different than these other gods? And, and this confusion is warranted. I mean, through the, through the years, this story has confused God's people. Skeptics have used this story as an attack against God, and it's created questions in the minds of, of questions and Christians alike as they grapple with some of the problematic aspects of this story. And so what you see is, is a, a, an incident here that seems to defy who God is, right? I mean, we have earlier in the book Cain and Abel, and, and we know how that worked out for Cain because he shed Abel's blood. Or in, in Genesis chapter 9, when God tells Noah that if the blood of an innocent person is shed by another person, then that person in turn should be executed. And so this passage just seems to conflict with what we already know about God in the book of Genesis. And so as a result, through the years and through the centuries, uh, you will see pastors and people and scholars interpret and apply this story in kind of a, of a, a moralistic way. Uh, an, an ethical, inspirational way. In other words, the, you know, look at this story and just be like Abraham, right? You know, when God tells you to do something, no matter how crazy it is, just do it. Don't question, just do it. And certainly there have been some within Islam and some within Christianity through the years that have taken this approach. And as a result, they've done horrendous things in supposed obedience to what they understood of God. Um, there was a Danish philosopher, some of you will recognize the name, maybe from high school or college, Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, he heard this passage preached by a pastor, and it came from that, that moralistic, inspirational, be like Abraham perspective. And he was so horrified by the implications of what this pastor was saying and this interpretation and application of the story, which is the wrong interpretation and application. He was so horrified by it that he ended up writing a book called Fear and Trembling. Uh, Kierkegaard rightly pointed out that if this is the point of the story, that we're just to obey God and do whatever he says and don't even think about it, then, then people can do the most horrific things, horrendous things in the name of God, and then we don't have the right to condemn what they do. And so he grapples with this passage and he ultimately spiritualizes it and says, the whole point of this passage is that you know, Christianity is a, a leap of faith into the dark. And to, to live out this passage, we are to take a leap of faith and attempt to do great things for God. But there have been pastors and scholars through the ages and, and modern times, people like Tim Keller, who point out that as horrific and as unsatisfying as that, that moralistic, inspirational application of the story uh, may be, the actual magnitude and horror and the anxiety of this test is very difficult for us 
as modern individualistic Americans to understand and experience because we just don't live life the way Abraham and his clan and, and that people lived it. I mean, think about it for a moment. If, if God came to you and told you to offer up your child as a sacrifice, what would be your response? How many of you would object? Raise your hand, right? I mean, I would object. I mean, God and I are going to go a few rounds. I mean, we're, I'm going to argue, and I'm going to fuss, and I'm going to fight. And, and honestly, I don't know that I could do it. Honestly, I probably wouldn't as a dad. I can't even imagine this. As so that begs the question, why doesn't Abraham push back at God? Okay. Why doesn't Abraham push back at God? I, I mean, he, he argues with God at other places, right? You go back to Genesis 18, the Lord comes to him and says, I'm going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And, and, and Abraham says, God, please think about this, please. You know, don't do this. What if, what if there's 50 righteous people in the city? Would you spare it then? And God says, okay. Well, what about 40? And then he begins to dicker with him and negotiate and push back. And this is for a bunch of, you know, Sodom and Gomorrahites, right? This isn't his son. And yet he doesn't, he doesn't push back at all. This doesn't make sense to us. We can't really understand this in some respects. But as Tim Keller points out, Abraham understood that what God was asking him to do was not to murder his son. If it was just to murder his son, he'd have gone into the tent and stabbed him. If God had asked him to kill his wife, Sarah, Abraham would then have objected. And the reason why he doesn't object to what God is asking him is because what God is asking of him was within the character and the right of God to ask. This is something that is, is foreign to us. But in the ancient world, people understood and accepted that God had ownership of their first things. It was a principle called primogenitor. And, and you would see this, for example, the, the firstborn son would inherit almost everything. And there was a reason behind that structure. But in the same way, God made a claim of ownership on all the first things, right? So you see this when Abraham returns from rescuing Lot earlier in Genesis. What does he do? He stops at, at Melchizedek, the high priest of God, and he offers up as a sacrifice of worship a tithe of the spoils of war because God owns the first things. This is a principle many of us need to get, right? We, we offer back to God, for example, today, our tithes because this is an act of worship acknowledging that God really owns all of it, but he puts a claim on the first things. And so you will then see throughout the scriptures this structure in place. God asking Abraham to offer him as a sacrifice of worship, Isaac, is God actually offering, asking him to give back to him something God already owns. God already has the rights to the firstborn son of promise. God puts the structure in place for a, a, a really important reason. And it was much more extensive than just the son. You, you read that the first ox, the first sheep, the first, you know, uh, lamb, all of these different things, right? They belong to God, including the firstborn son. 
This principle makes its way even into the law of Moses. In Exodus uh, chapter 13, you read where God tells them, the first thing that proceeds from the womb of any of your animals, from your women, they belong to me. All the firstborn animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Right? Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And this was in place at the time of Jesus. And this is why Joseph and Mary go back to the temple. They, they redeem Jesus by paying a sacrifice and, and a, you know, having a sacrifice done to redeem their child because God has rights upon this child. Now, the reason God has this structure in place is profound. And this is where we, can, you know, we don't see this right away. But what God is doing here is he's reminding people that there is an incredible debt of sin that every one of us has towards God. In fact, every family even owes this debt of sin. And so in calling for Abraham to offer Isaac, God is calling in the debt of sin that Abraham and his family owe. And so this is why Abraham does not object. This is why he doesn't push back. God is not asking of him something that is immoral. This is a just command from a just God. And so we have to understand this. We have to understand all that's happening here, as Keller points out, for us to really get the horror of, of what's going on, the true horror within Abraham's life. Yeah, listen, was he, was he gonna feel anxiety and pain and you know, despondency over just the giving up the life of his child? Absolutely. But there is something even more at play here. And, and where we get insight into this is the, the passage of scripture that has kind of undergirded our annual theme, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us the information we need. It says it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. The truest, deepest source of horror for Abraham was that in this command, it seemed that God's commandment was now in direct conflict with God's promises. And how does he make sense of this? Yes, it was just of God, but now it seems like the grace of God is over, that there's no more grace to be had. And so as a result, the promise, that, that gracious promise of everything that would happen through Isaac, as the child of promise. I mean, think about what was invested in this son. It was through him that the, that the family line was going to grow, that the people would extend, that a great nation would arise. It was through him that all the peoples of the earth are gonna be blessed, that the descendants of Abraham's ultimate family would be so uh, plentiful that a human being could not count them. It was through this child of the promise that the ultimate promised seed of the woman who would restore creation, undo the fall, redeem humanity for their sins is supposed to come 
And so the greatest horror here from Abraham's perspective is that it seemed like all of that gracious promised future that God had given to him is now over because God's just command is going to override God's gracious promise. And he's confused. He's horrified. How do you think he slept that night? Think he slept good? I don't think he did because verse three says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy, We'll go over there and worship and we will come again to you. What's interesting is how the narrator speeds up the action at this point, right? He, he doesn't tell us what uh, Abraham was thinking that night. We aren't told whether or not he went in and told Sarah uh, whether what he was about to do. How many of you think he went in and told Sarah what he was about to do? Raise your hand. Absolutely not, right? Couples haven't changed that much in 4,000 years, right? And he doesn't tell us anything hardly, but he does give us two important clues. First, he tells us that Abraham immediately obeys. There's no days of debating with God. It's the next morning he gets up and he obeys. Why? Because obedience, church, is always the characteristic of biblical, uh, biblical godly faith. Faith is characterized by obedience. And the first thing he does is he obeys. And then secondly, he takes three days to make a trip that probably should have only taken him a day and a half because of the distance involved. Why did it take him so long? I, I would contend, and I think many through the ages have done this, is that it was during that three days of making his way there that he's thinking and he's reconciling within himself the tension between the command of God and the promises of God. Something happened during those three days. And again, Hebrews 11 gives us the insight. It's the very last verse in Hebrews 11 that says anything about Abraham. And it tells us essentially what happened during that trip. It says, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Abraham makes this journey to the mount that God showed him. It was a place where Solomon would ultimately build the temple and the many animals would be sacrificed over the centuries to atone for the sins of God's people. It was the area where Jesus would enter on Palm Sunday, riding that donkey, weeping over the people of Jerusalem as he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, people who needed redemption, but who were going to reject their redeemer. Over that three-day journey, it's clear that Abraham meditated and he prayed and a type of resurrection faith took place and won the day. I'm sure that he thought back about God and everything that he knew about God and everything that God had taught him through the previous you know, 35 or so, 40 years. And he meditates and he prays and he concluded that the same miracle working God that brought Isaac out of a barren womb is the same miracle working God that could resurrect 
Isaac and bring him back from the dead if this is what God would have desired. So in his heart, he was convinced that while the command was just, God would not violate his promises concerning this child of promise and that in some way he was going to bring him back to life. So this leads us to the climactic scene in this passage. In verses six to 14, right? The action becomes more granular as we see God's provision for Abraham. He slows down the, the events. And it's like the narrator gives us a ringside seat, right? We can, we can feel the wood on our backs as this boy carries it for three days. As parents, we can hear his childish voice saying, how much farther or what? Are we there yet? <laughs> yeah. Or, and then ultimately we can hear that little voice ask the most important question. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? We feel the, the angst in Abraham's soul as he ties up his child and he places him on the altar. We wonder at Isaac's trust in his father that he doesn't struggle and fight. I mean, he's strong enough to carry wood for three days. He's strong enough to push back at a man who's well over 100 years old. And yet he, he lies there in trust of his father. We can, we can see Abraham, right? Can you envision the agony in his face as he holds that knife and he prepares to plunge it into his chest, any of us who have anything at all to do with children can, can understand it. while he's trusting God that he will be resurrected, still the horror of what God is asking that he has to do. And then we, we get the relief, the joy that had to be in Abraham's heart when he heard that voice say, stop! Now I know, now I know. And then there's a ram that's provided. You know, it's, it's natural for us to think that the central point that God wants us to get in this story is contained within those events where he's on the, the, the altar and he's about to know all that. I mean, that's so vivid, but ironically, that's not the case at all. In the introduction, I mentioned that this is a chiasm in the midst of another chiasm. Uh, we, we have been studying Abraham for eight weeks. It started at the end of chapter 11, and it concludes here in chapter 22, this, this unit, right? And, and a chiasm was a, a composition structure used in the ancient world, and it would have elements that would build upon each other until you got to the central portion of the chiasm, which was the point. Sometimes it was the climax of the action, but oftentimes it was not, and this is the case here. And so when it says climax on the scene, really think of it, this is the point. This is the point God wants. And so when you go to this unit, you see, for example, back in, in chapter 11, there it begins, the first step in that pyramid is the, the genealogy of Terah. And here at the end of chapter 22, it mirrors the last step in this chiasm is the genealogy of Nahor. You go back to chapter 12, verse one, the second step in this chiasm was, was God telling Abraham to go to a land that he would show him. 
And this story provides the, the next to the last step in this game. What, how does it open up? God telling Abraham to go to a land and to a mountain that he will show him. You see, there's this mirroring effect that goes on. And, and in the middle of this chiasm, you will find in this entire unit from chapter 11 to here, the middle point are the covenants of chapter 15 and 17. The whole point of these eight weeks that God really wants us to get is everything that I've taught you about the covenants and covenant, what we would call covenant theology. That's the point of the entire unit. But within the unit, there's these different stories. And all of them are arranged in chiasms. And there's a point in those stories. And so when you come to this chapter, we would look at it and say, oh, wow, the, the, the climax has to be the events that happen on the mountain when he's about, you know, that's God, wow. But that's not the case at all. If you look at, we'll pick up in verse six. It's in this portion of the text that we have the point that God is making here. Abraham takes the wood, lays it on Isaac. He took his, in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. Isaac asked the question, and of, you know, where is the lamb that is going to be sacrificed? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. That's the point. That's the central part of this chiasm. It's right there. What God does not want us to miss in this story is what Abraham refers to in verse eight. That it's in his grace that God alone provides redemption for our sin. This aspect of God's provision for redemption is what's so central, what's so important. And it's so important that when you get to the mountain, verses 13 and 14, kind of amplify on it and, and re-illustrate it. Verse 13, Abraham lifts up his eyes. He looks, he sees a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering. In verse 14, listen to this. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. While Isaac was spared, and restored to his father, a sacrifice still had to take place. Israel could not be, or excuse me, Isaac could not be redeemed without the shedding of blood. For when it comes to the forgiveness of sin, God is clear. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of innocent blood. God does not cancel out the debt that Isaac and Abraham's family has. Instead, he provides for him a different victim to take the place of Isaac who could embody the sin debt of Abraham's entire family. That's what God does. And God is so, uh, so gracious in this and Abraham is so overwhelmed that we are introduced to a new name for God that Abraham gives us, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it. Recognizing that central point in this story in turn then helps us to understand God's purpose in this test. Um, there was, I would contend, and I think most, most would agree through, even through the centuries, that there was an immediate purpose to this test and there was an ultimate eternal purpose to this test that applies to us even today. From an immediate perspective, Abraham needed this test. God can see Abraham's heart. 
He can see what's going on inside of him. He can see how important Isaac has become to Abraham. I mean, all of us who have had children, for example, or have been around those who have, know how easy it is for children to become the central part of the parents' universe. That everything, our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions, all of our work, our labor, it's centered on those children that God has given us, right parents? And what happens is that a blessing of God, our children, can actually become an idol that we worship even more than God. And so it's easy for us to understand that what could have been going on in the heart of Abraham was that he was being tempted with Isaac becoming an idol, that he was worshiping God and the blessings of God as much as he was God himself, that he was relying upon the blessings of God embodied in Isaac, perhaps even equal to or more than God himself. And you pick up on this tension because the word son is used so many times in this passage. And then other phrases like your only son whom you deeply love. God saw what was going on in the heart of Abraham. And so clearly, I think what's occurring is that after Ishmael's exile, Isaac has really become the apple of his daddy's eyes. Everything rests upon this young man. And while it's understandable from a human perspective, Abraham needed this test. The question is, was God enough for Abraham or was it God plus Isaac? That's the real question. Could could Abraham cope and live with just God or did it need to be God plus Isaac? Church, whenever we need God, plus something over here to feel secure or to feel validated or to be comforted. That thing on this side of the plus sign, no matter how good it is, is now an idol in our life. And as a result, God is going to test us. Testing, as one writer puts it, shows what someone is really like and it generally involves difficulty, pain, and hardship. God doesn't test us because he's angry at us. He doesn't test us because he's punishing us and he's mad at us. He's testing us to help us come to the realization that what is ever on this side of the plus sign is an illegitimate false God, that the only thing we need in life is God, period. He's the cake. Everything else is the icing, right? Those are the blessings. Church, we err when we make the blessings of God an ultimate in our lives. Now, Abraham passes this test, chapters, verses 15 and 19, show how God further blesses him and his family. And so he realizes once again, the only thing he needs is God. But I would suggest that in This test, there is a deeper, more expansive purpose that applies directly to you and me. You will find in the Old Testament a curious phenomenon. God oftentimes calls his prophets, of which Abraham is one of them, to become living illustrations of the truth that he wants his people 
to, to hear, to know, and to understand. We have some great examples of this, right? Hosea, the prophet, he is commanded to go and marry a prostitute. And then when she returns to prostitution to redeem her from that house of prostitution, to have children with her. And in that living illustration, it just kind of boggles the mind. God is telling Israel, you are the prostitute. You are committing spiritual adultery, but I am going to redeem you and bring you out of that uh, brothel that you live in. Uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel has to lay on his side for a year and he preaches and he proclaims God's word so that the people would understand the weight of their sin and what was coming in judgment. One of the ones that I feel sorriest for was poor Isaiah, right? He was a living illustration, all right. He, he made all the front pages of the newspaper because God had him walk around naked for three years and preach. I'm just gonna leave that alone, okay? <laughs> But here's this living illustration from God's prophets. And, and that's what we have right here in the same manner. What's happening here to Abraham is God providing us with a living, vivid illustration of our own need and what God does to provide for that need. We, we cannot come to this story like the moralist who says, we're to be like Abraham who does these. No, we are not Abraham in this story. We are Isaac in this story. We are the ones who have this incredible sin debt, recognizing that all of us are sinners who fall short of the glory of God and this massive sin debt must be punished. And the only way it is punished is through death. We are Isaac. We deserve to die for the debt of sin that we owe, that our family owes to God. But God is gracious. He has provided a lamb. John the Baptist, when he was in the wilderness preaching and proclaiming and preparing the way of the Lord, one day Jesus walks by. He says Jesus comes toward him and John the Baptist shouts out to the crowd, points out, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. Every lamb Every goat, every bull whose blood stained the dirt on Mount Moriah when the temple was built by Solomon, this, every one of those creatures was pointing us to the eternal Lamb of God. Hebrews tells us that the blood of those lambs, all the good works of those people and the blood of those sacrifices could not satisfy the sin debt of God, that we have towards God. The only thing that could satisfy God's judgment towards our sin was that the perfect lamb of God would come and that he would be sacrificed. We talked about Good Friday earlier. I hope that you'll come to the Good Friday service. Paxson does a great job, you know, helping us to understand the magnitude of that day in this service. And I know Paxson well enough to know that at some point in that service, he's going to have someone read from Isaiah 53. You can't do it without reading from 50, Isaiah 53. I wanna borrow a verse this morning, verse seven. He is talking about the Messiah, talking about that perfect lamb, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
while Isaac had a substitute, there was no substitute for Christ. While Isaac saw the knife in his father's hand stop before it could pierce his chest. Jesus, for Jesus, there was no substitute. He would experience the piercing of his side, the piercing of his soul, as God forsook his only begotten, loved son, had him sacrificed, take our place. Why? Why is this the case? Jesus is the only one who could live that perfect life that represent all of humanity, obey God perfectly, and in his righteousness, take that place on the wooden cross as Isaac laid on that wooden, that wooden altar and shed out his blood for us. Knowing that this was about to occur, is it any wonder that when Jesus was on that donkey, riding into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, that he would weep, weep over the people, weep over Jerusalem, weep over his brethren. He enters Jerusalem as the ultimate final sacrifice, as the one to whom all the lambs and all the rams and all the bulls and all the goats and that original ram on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac, he is the one that all of those creatures point to and he knows that this crowd who shouts Hosanna will soon shout, crucify him, crucify him. And he weeps as he sees them rejecting him. Are you rejecting Jesus this morning? Are you relying upon your own goodness, your own works to establish and maintain a relationship with God? If this is the case, no, all of your efforts will fail. No effort that we can bring can satisfy that debt that we owe to God. Church, Christian, is Jesus all you need to feel significant? Are you battling those inner idolatries where it's Jesus plus your career? Or is Jesus plus your financial security, plus your children, is your life a morass of a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of your career and a little bit of money and a little bit of possessions and a, a lot of your children and now I feel significant and safe and that I matter in this world? Is that what's going on in your life? We need to hear the message of this story, that it's God alone that we need and he will provide everything else that we think we need. We can sympathize with Abraham in this story right? We can imagine what it cost him to tie up his son, to, to almost sacrifice him. But the point of the story is not for us to focus on Abraham. The point of the story is to help us see how much God loves us, how much it cost him, because he did not give his dearly begotten son an out. He did not deliver him from the knife. He provided for us. Jesus is the ultimate embodiment and an illustration that we worship Jehovah Jireh. For God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son 
that whoever will believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Heavenly Father, we thank you. The sacrifice you made in sending your son, the pain, the agony of heart to see your beloved lamb sacrificed. Lord Jesus, we can't even begin to imagine what was going on in your heart and in your mind as you were in Gethsemane and agonizing, thinking about the cross to come. We can, we can read it, we can sense it to a certain degree, but we will never fully understand the pain, the horror of being separated from your loving Father. And so, Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning. On this Palm Sunday, when you rode into Jerusalem, preparing the way for us to do what we are doing here this morning, worshiping together, proclaiming your greatness and your goodness. Lord Jesus, would you continue to reveal yourself to us? Would you build in our hearts a deeper and deeper and stronger love and allegiance to you? So that truly, no matter what comes our way in life, we can say our full satisfaction is found in you not in your blessings. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.